The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. A group of people involved in Los Angeles' criminal underworld go through a series of interconnected adventures. It's our 250th episode, and we're celebrating with a conversation about annoying cell phone antennas, how heroin makes you constipated, and my favorite story about a quarter pounder with cheese. Then we find out if Pulp Fiction stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Allen says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I'm Alan Noah, your James Brief, and this is episode 250. Yeah, 250. Oh my god, 250. <laughs> James, this is like huge. 250, man. How about that? Have you ever committed to anything 250 times in a row weekly for five years ever? <laughs> I don't think I've ever done anything 250 times. Like, I mean, this is definitely like a serious accomplishment. Humble brag. I'm I'm proud of us. This is awesome. How many years will it take us to catch up with The Simpsons? They just hit their 700th episode, but, you know, they only do 22 a year. So if they keep going, I don't know. That's a math problem. But we're moving here, man. We are going. Yeah. And this kind of picked up from... Al and I would just kind of nerd out and talk about movies, sometimes for a half hour, an hour or more. And then we just decided, like, why don't we just record it once and, and kind of do like a test? And and if anyone's listened and you still can listen to it, our first episode, there's no real structure to it. Uh, the first episode, Independence Day, we kind of just talked about the movie. I would say pretty fairly quickly we got kind of our, you know, the structure of the episodes together. But it's been a thing that's grown. And, you know, we don't do this for money. This isn't one of those podcasts where we're like, and now let's pay our bills. And I'd like to tell you about Zip Recruiter. You know, we don't have that. So it's a 250 episode labor of love. Yes. I would totally take ZipRecruiter's money, though, to be clear. Like, I would be really fine with that. But yes, I mean, this is a labor of love. And I did just want to give you a little quiz. I mean, we do this sort of like every 50 episodes. I wanted to ask you to guess our most downloaded episodes from 2016 through 2020. See if you can guess our most downloaded episode from 2016. 
I mean, 2016 is going to be, I assume, our first year. So, I mean, I'll say uh, Ghostbusters. No, it's a movie that kind of makes you hungry, especially if you have a sweet tooth. Um, Starship Troopers. No. <laughs> uh, I, I would assume then uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, that is correct. Our most downloaded episode of 2017, we've mentioned this before, our theory as to why was because people must have just been searching for the soundtrack. Oh, so that, that would be Sister Act. That is correct. Our most downloaded episode of 2018, I'll give you a hint, it was an episode with a guest, a member of the Five Timers Club, Dom Monfrey. Um... I'm going to say, just because I like digging at you that we like this film and you didn't, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to say Mortal Kombat. Or rather, Mortal Kombat! You're mispronouncing it. The title of that movie is actually pronounced... Uh, And no, that is not correct. It was actually The Crow, which was a fun episode. It's always fun when Dom stops by. Okay, our most downloaded episode of 2019... This was a Disney movie that we talked about because they did a live-action version, and we talked about the animated version. Um, I'm going to go with Beauty and the Beast. No. In 2019, it was Aladdin. Okay. All right. And now, guess our most downloaded episode of 2020, and the only hint I'm going to give you is there's no reason at all this should be our most downloaded episode of 2020. That's the only hint I'm going to give you. Um, I'm going to go with the fact that if you download this episode, you get two Van Dams for the price of one, and I'm going to go with Double <laughs> Impact. <laughs> no, that is a good guess. I do feel like that Instagram post got like a way higher number of likes than our usual posts. Uh, good guess, but no, the correct answer is the Care Bears movie. <laughs> That is amazing. (laughs) Why? I mean, the only reason I could guess for actually maybe all of these movies is that people were searching for the soundtracks. We said that about Sister Act, but maybe people were trying to get the Crow and Aladdin and Willy Wonka and the Care Bears movie soundtracks. But we reviewed some very popular, beloved movies in 2020. The Care Bears movie got the most downloads, though. So if you happen to download any of those episodes accidentally and you're still listening, hey, that's great. Uh, Let us know, like write to us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or something, because I would love to know that story that you just accidentally stumbled upon us. And you're like, eh, what the hell? I'll keep listening to these guys. That is really funny because I remember when the Care Bear podcast uh, came out, I remember thinking, this is one of those episodes that our friends are going to skip because they're going to be like, I don't know this movie. It's not a kid's film like The Muppets or something that uh, I'm slightly interested in listening to. That's amazing that people actually uh, download the Care Bear movie uh, podcast. Listen, we had a good time on that episode, so I'll stand by it as a, as a good entree to our show. But, you know, um, I'm going to reveal something here that the, uh, the listeners may not know about Al. And I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, it reveals a little bit about his sex life. Uh, what? Alan has kids. I, I mean, it's in our theme song. That, that is true. But <laughs> you know what, Al? I do not have kids. You do not have grandkids. You don't have 
great-grandkids, and you'll probably, unless, you know, the singularity happens in our lifetime, you'll probably never meet your great-great-grandkids, etc., etc., I was thinking about something, and that's, um, I know you've watched a bunch of these movies with your kids, and, you know, you've experienced it with them, but I would assume a movie like today's film, Pulp Fiction, you did not watch with your uh, with your young daughter. Uh, no, I did not watch this with my kids. And of course you didn't. And the thing is, Pulp Fiction is not going anywhere. And, you know, someday your kid is going to see Pulp Fiction. And, you know, I think it's kind of cool that your kid, my non-existent kid, and our great-great-great-grandchildren, there's 250 hours or more straight of us talking about movies. And to, like, my great-great-great-grandkids... Put down your space homework. And, you know, if if they (laughs) want to find, like, one of these old films, it's kind of cool because they can kind of share it with us. And these things aren't going anywhere. I'm sure our opinions of these things will change. I'm sure our opinions of uh, of kids would have been different at 17 versus, you know, 40. Maybe it'll change again when we're 80. But this is what we thought of these films in the year 2017, 2021, hopefully years from now too. But, you know, these things really will be forever in posterity. And, you know, even talking about, like, we're excited about episode eight of Star Wars or something, you know, all these little things, I just think it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I mean, I'll take it to a dark place now, but, you know, like, when a relative dies and you have to go through all of like their old photos and that's like the most depressing thing. Like I hate doing that, but like this, you know, like no one will have to go through anything. It'll be in the cloud or implanted in our great grandkids brains or whatever. And they can listen to it. They cannot, whatever, you know, they don't have to throw anything away. And I will say that my son is maybe our biggest fan like he listens to this podcast all the time and now he's really interested in watching movies that we have done that he hasn't seen he got on like this kick of Arnold Schwarzenegger he's like I've never seen any Arnold Schwarzenegger movies you've reviewed a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies which Arnold Schwarzenegger movies can I see and he started with the last action hero one because he wanted to see it but then two so that he could then go and listen to our old episode so that thing that you're talking about it's kind of already happening now and yeah it's awesome yeah, and I don't mean to be morbid too, but one day when we're not here, this is honestly hundreds of hours of hanging out with us, and it is pretty cool. Yes, it is. It is. And in terms of just the podcast longevity, one might think, all right, well, they've done 250 episodes. How many more can there be? Anyone who knows me in real life knows that I'm obsessed with Google Docs. I love Google Docs. I have a Google Doc for everything. We have a Google Doc called Future Episodes. And I did a quick tally the other night. We have 271 movies on our to-do list. And that's not even including the ones that we have like slotted out for the rest of this year. There's a lot of ground left to cover. Like We are not running out at all anytime soon. And there might be 10 films in that list from the year 2000 to 2006, which as of today qualify for this podcast. Like every year, there's 100 new films that we could do. So exactly, you know, it, it really would never end. Yeah. 
But let's talk about Pulp Fiction. Last week, we did an episode on Reservoir Dogs. I mentioned then that I'm not the biggest Quentin Tarantino fan, uh, but I went into this movie with an open mind. I hadn't seen Pulp Fiction in many, many, many years, probably since like the mid-90s when it first came out, to be honest. Uh, And I was interested in revisiting it. And it's different from Reservoir Dogs. It's got some similar themes, but it's a very different movie. So I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. And in case you haven't seen it in a while, Pulp Fiction is Quentin Tarantino's uh, third film that he wrote, the second film he directed. And it involves uh, several overlapping stories that all take place within the city of Los Angeles. There's a story of two hitmen whose mission goes awry, a crooked boxer who cheats at cheating, a couple that robs a diner, the drug-addicted wife of a mob boss, and a gimp. Right. Classic cliche story, you know, (laughs) you see that in every movie. Uh, This is normally the part where I ask you how the movie did at the box office, but I know that this was a huge hit. It was made on not a shoestring budget like Reservoir Dogs, but a modest budget, and it did really, really well, right? You know, I remember when this film came out, it was one of those things that got a lot of buzz, but a lot of films get, you know, every critic says four stars, and, you know, it just comes and goes. Some critically acclaimed film that's going to be nominated for Best Picture that you're not going to see. But I remember that Bruce Willis was in this film. And, I mean, today, Bruce Willis takes any role that pays him. But back then, I mean, Bruce Willis was, like, the A-list star of A-list stars. And so I remember thinking that when he was in a a critically uh, acclaimed film and it's one of these Miramax films and you know forget uh, any Harvey Weinstein stuff Miramax back in the 90s meant this is a great film I mean it started out with things like Cinema Paradiso and and you have this film and you had Goodwill Hunting and you know all these critically acclaimed films this was Miramax and is it the Palme d'Or is that how you pronounce that uh, that prize yeah I think the the Palme d'Or yeah, because it, it won the Cannes Film Festival, the Palme d'Or, which is basically the best film at the world's biggest film festival. And that really turned a lot of heads. And it actually opened on October 14th, 1994. It had an $8 million budget. And its first weekend, it opened with $9.3 million. It was number one for two weekends in a row. And it was in the top 10 for six weeks after it opened, from October to November. And then after the Oscars, it wound up being in the top 10 for another seven weeks in 1995, from February to April 1995. This thing opened mid-October 1994, and it was in the top 10 in April 1995, uh, with a little exit from the top 10 in uh, January and uh, beginning of February. But that's amazing. Yeah, it had legs. I mean, everybody was talking about this movie. It was like the thing. I am pretty sure I didn't see it in the theater. Did you see it in the theater when it came out? I kind of think I might have seen it in the theater. This opened like our sophomore year of high school. So if I saw it, I mean, I kind of probably like, you know, maybe bought a ticket for something else and and snuck into it. But uh, (gasps) yeah, 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 that did happen. But I didn't mention that this film, uh, the $8 million budget, it wound up uh, grossing $107 million domestically and $230 million worldwide. So, I mean, this cemented Quentin Tarantino as one of those rare people that, 
I mean, there's only really Spielberg and James Cameron that the headlining part of a movie is from director blank. And that puts butts in the seats. Well, I don't know about that. I think a lot of directors have their niche audiences. Like, people go nuts for a new, like, Wes Anderson movie. Is the new Wes Anderson movie going to be a global blockbuster? No. But there are people who are going to be excited just by a new Wes Anderson movie. And Christopher Nolan. I mean, there are people, but it's incredibly rare. Right. And this movie, like Reservoir Dogs, opens in a diner. It's a conversation between these two characters who go by Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And uh, Pumpkin is Tim Roth, who is also in Reservoir Dogs. And they are smoking inside a restaurant while they're talking, which still looks weird to me, you know, even though we've seen it in a bunch of movies. And they're basically talking about how it would be a good idea to rob the diner because no one really cares about a diner. It's not like people are going to rush to stop them. There's money in the cash register. And then if they take the wallets from everyone who's in the diner, they'll make a ton of money. It'll be easy. They don't have like an alarm system, like in a bank, like everyone steals from liquor stores. Let's rob from a diner. And it's setting up the criminal element of this movie right out of the gate before the credits even roll. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a dialogue-heavy opener, and it doesn't really draw you in. It's like, this is the movie everyone's talking about. But, you know, they, they mentioned for the second time in uh, two Quentin Tarantino films in a row about how uh, diner waitresses make absolute shit. And uh, you kind of don't know if they're talking, like, philosophically. Like, ah, one could rob a diner and make a killing. But they just go, you want to do it? Yeah, sure. And these two people pull out huge guns out of their uh, purse and uh, waist band and they just tell everyone to freeze it's a robbery right uh then the opening credits roll and we'll revisit this scene later on but uh then it goes to jules and vincent and jules is played by samuel l jackson vincent is john travolta and we should mention this is the first of several returns of john travolta john travolta had for a while been a big joke he was in very successful films in the 70s, uh, Grease and uh, Saturday Night Fever. But in the 80s, he was kind of a punchline. Uh, he famously starred in a huge flop, the Saturday Night Fever uh, a sequel called Staying Alive. And it was a notorious flop because this is almost like, I think it's like eight or nine years after Saturday Night Fever. And he did have a modest hit with, uh, um, no, it was a pretty big hit with Look Who's Talking that we reviewed. But then he kind of milked that again, Look Who's Talking too, and Look Who's talking now and a lot of other big flops and he was kind of a, a punchline again and then this film really brought him back so and also you know look who's talking it's a fun film but it's not exactly what someone would say like this is an oscar worthy film like that's not amazing acting so this is the kind of film that people are like wow like john travolta might be nominated for an academy award for best actor you know it's one of those things like when people heard like uncut gems like no no i'm serious Adam Sandler, that Adam Sandler, Billy Madison might be nominated for a Best Acting Award. 
Right. And the opening scene with Jules and Vincent is incredibly memorable. It's when they're in the car. Vincent's talking about his experiences in Europe, and he's talking about being in Amsterdam and how crazy it is that pot is legal in Amsterdam, which is a reference that doesn't really stand the test of time now that more and more states have legalized marijuana. New York being one of the most recent. Way to go, New York. I mean, for people that haven't uh, been to California, there is a weed store on every corner, sometimes like across the street from each other. And these range from incredibly sketchy looking ones to, I mean, these ones look like Apple stores. I mean, watching this scene, Jules, uh, Samuel Jackson's character, being an absolute awe of the fact that, you know, weed is legal, it doesn't hit like it did. It's just really interesting to, to show that the, the taboo of this is completely gone. Right. But I think the thing that people really remember about this scene is the Royale with cheese. In France, they don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese because, you know, metric system. They call it a Royale with cheese. Oh, well, what do they call a Big Mac? Oh, they call it a Big Mac, but it's Le Big Mac. Like, that's just something that if you saw this movie once or even if you haven't, you've probably heard about that line. Yeah, yeah. I do want to say my favorite uh, story about a quarter pounder with cheese. How many stories about quarter pounders with cheese do you have that you have a favorite story? I guess is the uh, only other one. But uh, <laughs> apparently Wendy's at some point want to compete with the quarter pounder with cheese. So they decided to make a third of a pound. And it was a flop because apparently people who need to learn basic math better, they didn't realize that one third, one over three is a larger amount of meat than one over four, three being a smaller number than four. It was a big flop because people did not think it was a better bargain. Hashtag America's education system. <laughs> oh, actually, no, I made a mistake. It's actually A&W, not Wendy's. Uh, that is kind of funny. But they are on their way to see this guy, Brett, because Brett is a business associate with their boss, Marcellus Wallace, and they need to collect a briefcase from this guy, Brett, and Brett fucked up. What exactly did he do? What exactly happened with this briefcase? We don't know. Famously, we don't even know what's in the briefcase. The briefcase is referred to as like the ultimate MacGuffin, which I kind of don't think it really is because it's only in two scenes in this movie. But, you know, just as a plot device, it works as a MacGuffin. Whenever they open it, there's just like this glow and everyone's like, wow. And then they close it. So you don't know what's in it. But basically, Brett fucked up this deal and Jules and Vincent are there to get the suitcase and kill Brett and his friends. Of course, before that happens, Jules goes on like this monologue about what does Marcellus look like? Does he look like a bitch? If he doesn't look like a bitch, then why did you fuck him like a bitch? And he shoots the guy who's lying on the couch just to get the other guy's attention. He eats Brett's hamburger and drinks his Sprite just as like a show of power. And this whole scene is just like... Samuel L. Jackson chewing the scenery, being the most badass motherfucker. It's just a great scene. 
Oh, and again, uh, this is not the famous Samuel L. Jackson. This is the unknown Samuel L. Jackson, who he has bit roles in films, and they're well-liked bit roles in films, but he did not get paid money for uh, coming to America. He probably got, you know, SAG minimum dues for that cameo in McDowell's and, and all those other little cameos that he did. This was his breakthrough. Later this year, he would also be in Die Hard with a Vengeance, also starring Bruce Willis, but they don't share any scenes in this film. I think maybe uh, Bruce Willis is in the background of a scene that uh, that Jules is in, but they have no scenes together. But this is an amazing performance, and most famously, probably the performance of his career, is the Ezekiel 2517 monologue that he says. And, and it's at the path of the righteous man, and this is something that he says before he executes Brett. And I do love that before they go into Brett's apartment to to kill them all, he says to Vincent, hey, man, let's get into character. This is all an act. This is just something he does to just be badass. And, you know, he kind of likes what he does up until about, you know, a moment after uh, the Ezekiel 25 17 speech. He really likes being a badass. He likes saying this, like, I believe he calls it some cold-ass shit to say to someone before I kill them. It might be one of the best-delivered monologues in movie history. Yeah, and then we cut to... Jules and Vincent bringing the suitcase to their boss, Marcellus Wallace, but they're in totally different clothes. They're in suits in the first scene, and now they're in, like, T-shirts. And it's like, well, what the hell happened? And we'll find out later in the movie what happened, but... For now, we just see Marcellus, or we don't really see him. We see the back of his head, and he's talking to Butch, and that's Bruce Willis's character. And Butch is a boxer, and basically Marcellus is telling him that he has to throw this fight, and you'll feel some pride, and you won't want to do it, but you're going to do it, and you're going to make a ton of money, right? And Butch is like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And there's a moment where Butch and Vincent meet at the bar and Vincent is really dismissive of him. He calls him Palooka and he calls him punchy for whatever reason. He just doesn't respect boxers in general, or maybe just Butch specifically. We don't know, but uh, it is a little bit of foreshadowing that there's some uh, bad blood between these two guys. Yeah, I love this scene. We do get little later hints of it because we do see Butch's apartment. I never noticed it till I watched it this time, but there's a framed uh, picture of Butch on the cover of a boxing magazine. And, oh, I um, miss that. Yeah, Marcellus mentions, he's like, you almost made it all the way. You almost made it to the top of the boxing world, but you didn't. And you're never going to, because if you were going to, you would have made it by now. So there is this idea that Butch is a huge loser. He's a washed up guy. He's he's at the point where his career that he's incredibly talented, but he's going to you know take a fall during a fight. And this guy, uh, Marcellus, we don't see him for several scenes. And he is played masterfully by Ving Rhames. And there's a great uh, piece of trivia that I learned a long time ago about this scene. You know, we see, the, like you said, the back of his head. And he's got a shaved head. And you see a Band-Aid on the back of his head. Never explained. Uh, do you know what the story of his Band-Aid is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the real-life story is nothing. Like, Ving Rhames 
cut himself while he was shaving his head. Uh, and so that's why there was a Band-Aid. But that led to this fan theory that what is in the suitcase is Marcellus's soul. And it was extracted from the back of his head. And that's why there's a glow when they open the suitcase. And that's why the lock to open the suitcase, the, the combination is 666. And I don't know if the theory started on the internet in the early days, but it's just one of those theories that you know, you could make a compelling argument for it, and it's not really based on any actual fact, but it's interesting. I actually heard that it was even more lame than what you heard. I heard he, uh, Ving Rhames had a pimple, and they had to cover that up with a Band-Aid. So, oh, really? A, a cut on the back of his head could kind of look badass, but a pimple is not going to look badass on this guy. But I just, I love that. I love the scene. Bruce Willis, he's he's awesome in this film. He He just has this, like angry loser look and and you know it's a fantastic look for him yes and it's interesting the way that scene is framed because we're hearing everything marcellus is saying but we're only looking at bruce willis's face we're only seeing his reaction we don't see marcellus's face at all but then uh, Vincent has to go and take Marcellus's wife out because Marcellus is going to be leaving town and he doesn't want his wife to be bored. So it's going to be Vincent's job to show her a good time. And that as a concept seems weird to me, you know, like I can't imagine me going out of town for work and being like, hey, James, Courtney's going to be bored. So you better show her a good time while I'm away on my work trip. Like, that's just weird. I get the feeling that the backstory is that um, the wife does not have any friends. She's one of these wives that uh, Marcellus doesn't want her having any friends. He doesn't want her certainly not having any guy friends. And, you know, he takes one of his top lieutenants. And we actually know that Marcellus cheats on his wife. We, we definitely see that in another scene. Well, we see him, like, hanging out by a pool with another woman. Maybe it's his cousin or something. His white cousin? Yeah. I mean, I guess it could be his white cousin. <laughs> it could be. But, it could be. Um, do you hang out with your cousin when she's wearing just like a bikini? I mean, I guess you could just hang out by the pool, right? Yeah. I mean, if you were going swimming, I get what you're saying. I think another plausible theory is that Marcellus knows that his wife is a drug addict. And so he maybe just wants someone to be around her to keep an eye on her in case she ODs, which... Spoiler alert is basically what happens. But of course, Vincent is also a drug user. He goes to his dealer's place to get some drugs. The dealer is played by Eric Stoltz. What do you think of when you hear Eric Stoltz, by the way? I always think the same thing. The guy who would have been Marty McFly? Yeah, the guy who actually was Marty McFly for like half the film. And then they just reshot the whole thing with Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I mean, he's done some other cool things, I guess. He's done a lot of stuff. He's a very, very accomplished, well, well-known actor. But, uh, you know, he never hit A-list star because he wasn't in Back to the Future. That's true. And would Back to the Future have been the success it was with Eric Stoltz? Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. There's some alternate universe where that happened. Uh, but Eric Stoltz, as a drug dealer, sells Vincent some heroin. Uh, he's saying that Coke is dead. Heroin is the new thing. And he'd usually put it in a balloon. But, oh, he's all out of balloons. Can he put it in a baggie? And, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. So he gets this bag of really expensive heroin. He shoots up there. They really take their time with, like, showing you how they shoot up the heroin 
which I thought was like a little gratuitous. Like he's doing drugs. We get it. You don't need to like show the play by play of how he does it. Yeah, I mean, they definitely sexualize the the shooting up scene. But I have to say, it's it's a masterful way that they do this because I've never done heroin. I don't know what it's like. But the scene right after he shoots the plunger into his uh, bloodstream, there's a scene where Travolta is driving. Obviously, he's just sitting on a set, you know, behind like one of those half cars. And just the headlights are going by and his eyes are completely glazed and... Not having any idea what shooting up heroin is like, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is accurate. This is well done. Like, I just thought it was so brilliant that they did it like this. I, I think it's well done, even if uh, to use uh, the Alan from uh, the kids podcast, you might say it's irresponsible of Quentin Tarantino to do this, Al. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but there's a lot of things that Quentin Tarantino does that are irresponsible, and we'll get to more of that later on. Yeah. Uh, but he picks up Mia, who's Marcellus's wife. She has like this weird intercom system in her house, which I don't know like if that was supposed to be advanced and high tech for 94. I mean, to me now, if like you have a couple of Alexas, it's not really that big of a deal. But they go to this 50s kind of diner that's called Jack Rabbit Slims. I read that like creating this set was where they spent like the majority of their budget. And you know, it's it's kind of funny. The waiters and waitresses are all Marilyn Monroe and Buddy Holly lookalikes. The Buddy Holly lookalike is Steve Buscemi, which is kind of funny. But you know, Mia goes to the bathroom. She says she's going to powder her nose. I guess that's a thing that women used to say to make going to the bathroom not sound crude, I guess. But it's funny here because she's going to the bathroom to literally stick powder up her nose and snort cocaine. And then there's this whole conversation about the $5 shake, which is like really expensive for a milkshake. And Vincent just can't get over the fact that why would you spend $5 on a milkshake, which now in 2021 is like, well, yeah, that's what a milkshake would cost, right? At a restaurant, it would not cost $5. At a restaurant like this, it would easily cost like $10 or more. If he had said a $30 shake, I might turn heads today. But, uh, uh, you know, it reminds me of that scene, um, uh, Scent of a Woman, when he's like, a $20 hamburger. And you know, right. I mean, that's, that's a burger at, at a lot of places now. Right, right. Um, But then they have this dancing contest and Mia wants to do the dancing contest and she knows that Vincent has to do whatever she wants. So she makes him do this contest. And this is, you know, another one of those famous things from this movie when they're doing the dance and like Travolta kind of moves like his hands over his eyes. And apparently it was, you know, kind of like a joke because Travolta was known for doing, you know, so much dancing in Saturday Night Fever. And here he is doing another big dance scene. And apparently people thought that Tarantino wrote that for Travolta. But he said that, no, that was always in the movie long before Travolta was cast. And even after he was cast, he's like, well, that's in the movie. And so, yeah, he'll do it. Yeah, I do love that scene. And they do, uh, I guess, one of the moves you call it the Batusi I just reminded me of the old uh, Adam West Batman uh, moves. Right, right. I think that's fair. But they go back to Mia's house, and there's a little bit of flirting going on between these two. 
But Vincent knows he shouldn't make a move on his boss's wife. You know, earlier when he was talking with Jules, there's this whole conversation about this other guy who Marcellus threw out of a four-story window, allegedly because he gave Mia a foot massage. So... That alone is reason for Vincent to not do anything. But he's in the bathroom, like, explaining to himself why he should not do anything. And what he should do is politely have one drink and then leave. And while he's talking to himself in the mirror, Mia's in the other room. She finds Vincent's bag of heroin in his jacket pocket. She thinks it's cocaine and she snorts it. And like you, I have never done heroin. I have never done cocaine. I don't know anything about this, but... I guess that like that's why she ODs because she snorts it thinking it's cocaine, but really it's heroin, I guess. I'm the same boat as you. I don't have experience with this, but I assume you don't snort like five lines of heroin straight up your nose because it always seems like in any movie that I've seen, they put a very small amount of powder on a spoon and then they boil that with a lighter. It seems like you use a very, very little amount. And she has put like maybe 20 times this amount immediately up her nose. And she basically goes into like respiratory arrest and he comes out of the bathroom and he finds her covered in vomit and he panics and he brings her to uh to Eric Stoltz's house. And I do love that uh as he's panicking and driving to uh the drug dealer's house, he's calling on his cell phone and he's doing that thing in the mid 90s where you have to extend the antenna of the phone so he's like he's driving with one hand so he has to like put the antenna in his mouth and pull back the phone to extend the uh antenna. I, I do love those like little 90s touches. Did those antennas actually do anything like i felt like the service on those phones was always kind of bad but you would always like take that one second to pull the antenna out i always kind of felt like it was there more to like make you feel better than to actually improve service no i think it did have a purpose i think now the antenna is kind of built into the phone Uh, that's what i think i think the antenna kind of wraps around the phone if i'm not mistaken and i'm sure uh we do have a listener too that will correct us on that I think it's built in in some way. But yeah, that leads to another iconic scene where Stoltz gives Vincent this needle with adrenaline and he tells him that he has to inject it directly into her heart and go through the chest plate. Of course, I'm going to ask you as a doctor, medically accurate? I assume you do this a lot with your pediatric patients. In many ways, this is inaccurate. I mean, you've probably heard of it, what the antidote to heroin overdose is. It's something called naloxone or Narcan. It's not epinephrine. I thought it was love. I mean, we don't really know what the issue was with her, but also you do not stab it directly into the heart. That That is not how it works. You would just find a vein and put it into the vein. Like, you don't need to put it into the heart. Like, if you put it into a vein, it will be in the heart in like half a second, if the heart is beating. If this is a heroin overdose, then, then you need Narcan, not Naloxone. And it's called epinephrine, but uh, adrenaline is what they call it in, in Europe. And But like, adrenaline is just a cooler thing. Even though this is inaccurate, it's so cool. And it's so much cooler that it's adrenaline into the heart as opposed to getting an IV into a wrist and putting Narcan in there. It's really, really cool. I do love this scene. Right. But then they have this moment where they say goodnight and they both agree to not tell Marcellus what happened because they would both get in trouble and neither one of them wants that. 
But then the movie takes a turn to Butch and we get to Butch as a kid and he is getting this watch from a friend of his father's. It's a guy named Captain Coons, played by Christopher Walken. And he tells this horrifying story to this little boy who's just sitting there like in front of the TV watching some old black and white TV show about how his great grandfather bought this watch and he brought it to World War One, and then his grandfather brought it to World War Two, and his father took it to Vietnam and all of these men in his family were these proud soldiers and they passed down this watch and his father was in a POW camp with Christopher Watkins' character for years and he hid this watch up his ass and then when the father died he gave it to Christopher Walken Christopher Walken held it up his ass and then now he's finally back in America and he is returning this watch to this little boy because it is his birthright and the little kid is just like completely confused about what the hell this guy is saying I mean it's a horrifying story to tell like a little boy to me the joke didn't really land of like, haha, this watch has been in your dad's ass and my ass for many years. Here you go, kid. Like, I get it that it's funny, but I just kind of was like, yeah, but they had to go to the bathroom over those seven years too, right? So how did that work? I mean, I assume they kept pooping it out and putting it back in. But this is the scene, this and one other scene that I can clearly remember watching this with my high school friends. And we were laughing out loud at this. This was hysterical to us. And this is 15-year-old boy's humor. Fair enough. It's also Christopher Walken. And he says it so deadpan. He's just like, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let some guy take away your birthright. And... (laughs) It's just so well done, this scene. I agree with you. The joke doesn't land as hard when you're 40 than when you're 15. But it's such a great Christopher Walken cameo. You're 41 and a half. Don't round down, man. I mean, I'm right there with you. I'm 41 and a half, too. But, you know, let's be honest here. Uh, The scene then cuts to Butch as an adult, Bruce Willis. And he does not throw the fight. He wins the fight. Apparently, he kills the other guy that he was fighting with accidentally. He didn't mean to, but he's sort of like doing a double cross. He took the money from Marcellus. He bet it on himself. And now he's got a ton of money, more than he would have had, but he's in deep shit. So he and his girlfriend are going to have to leave town, but his girlfriend, Fabian, didn't get the watch from their apartment. And when they are first talking, she's like really sweet and she's got this like adorable accent and she's saying that she would look beautiful with a pot belly, but men don't look handsome with a pot belly. And, you know, it's just really this sweet moment. But when he finds out that she forgot the watch, he like flips out. And at first I thought he was like going to smack her. He doesn't, but like he's yelling so much that she's like terrified and she's like cowering in the corner and like the tone really changes on a dime. And I guess the reason is because the watch is so important to him. Yeah, yeah. You feel bad for him that he lost the watch. You feel bad for her that, uh, you know, she forgot the watch. You know, because we've all been in that situation. She's like, no, 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 I brought it. And he's like, are you sure? She's like, I remember bringing it. Are you sure? Um, And you could tell she's realized now that she didn't actually pack it. And so she finally, after like the fifth or sixth time of him bringing it up, she's like, 
no, I didn't. And, you know, not to this extent, but we've all been in that situation where we suddenly realize, oh, shit, I forgot to do it. Any second now I have to admit it to this person. I did not do what I was supposed to do or maybe even promised I did do. It's a great scene. But, of course, uh, Butch has to go back to his apartment. You could tell he's like, I'm going to be killed, but I will be killed for this watch. This watch has been through too much to let me just abandon it for some homeless guy to break into my abandoned apartment and just, uh, you know, pawn it. Yes, he's he's aware that this very well might be a suicide mission, but he goes into the apartment and no one's there. And he's like, "Okay." he sees the watch. He grabs it like everything's going well. And then he's like, oh. I might as well just make some Pop-Tarts because his girlfriend was saying she was going to go out and have like this big, huge breakfast. And, you know, now they can't have breakfast together, but might as well grab a snack while he's home. But then he hears a toilet flushing and then he notices there's a very large gun next to the sink and he realizes someone is, in fact, in the apartment. He picks up the gun. It's Vincent who's in the bathroom. He opens the door. They stare at each other for a second and Butch kills him. Just like, you know, shoots him many, many times. And Vincent, because he had to go to the bathroom, is killed. He wasn't being vigilant in that moment, waiting for Butch. And now he's dead. Which is, like, shocking because he's one of the stars of the movie. Uh, But, of course, as we realize, this is far from Travolta's last scene. It's the last chronological scene for this character. But we actually see in several scenes that John Travolta's character tries to poop many times. And he's unable to because he's a heroin addict. And heroin addicts are constipated. Like, famously, when they go through withdrawal, they have massive diarrhea. That's a famous thing? I'd never heard that before. Well, I mean, it's, it's a famous, like heroin thing like you ever see train spotting uh yes i don't really remember it but oh yeah there's like a whole shit scene in that right uh, basically uh i mean it's, it's a thing with with heroin addicts like yeah opioids cause constipation so yeah he's basically constipated the entire time and this guy he's been trying to poop for like the entire movie and this guy finally is able to go and you know he's supposed to be waiting for butch to come to the apartment but he actually like he goes to the bathroom and what an idiot he leaves the machine gun outside the bathroom it is a recurring theme that every time vincent has to go to the bathroom something bad happens the first time is you know while he's talking to himself in the bathroom about not hooking up with Mia and she overdoses later on when we revisit the diner scene you know that's when the guys try to rob the diner and he's in the bathroom then so he's always in the bathroom I guess the heroine is the reason why I I didn't know that Um, but still Butch is like he's getting away with it he takes the watch he heads back to his car he's driving back to his girlfriend and then he sees Marcellus just crossing the street And apparently the connection is that Marcellus was supposed to be at the apartment with Vincent and he was, but then he just stepped out to get donuts and, uh, you know, told Vincent to stay there and wait in case Butch comes back, which is why, you know, Marcellus happens to be so close by. They don't really explain that in the movie. I think that was just like something that Tarantino said in a commentary or something, but I was saying in our episode about the saint, like there are all of these like stupid coincidences that are unbelievable. But this one, you just sort of like, 
it's so stupid that it works. Like he's going to get away with it, but then he just so happens to see the one person in the world he doesn't want to see carrying some donuts and some coffee. But Butch reacts. He drives right into Marcellus. Marcellus is hurt, but he's okay. Marcellus is shooting at him. They end up stumbling into this pawn shop. And then things take a really, really weird turn. So Butch ambushes him and hits him on the head. And the two are tussling on the floor. And uh, Butch winds up getting the, uh, I think he gets the gun or he gets the upper hand. And he's basically going to shoot Marcellus. And suddenly there's a shotgun and the pawn shop owner's like, hold it right there. And, you know, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Leave us alone, man. It's not your business. And you think that this pawn shop owner is like, look, you know, no one's shooting anyone in my store. He picks up the, the telephone. You assume he's calling the police. And the next thing you know, the pawn shop owner knocks the two of them out. And the two men, they wake up in complete like bondage gear. They have like a ball and gag in their mouth. Each of them are tied to a chair. And the pawn shop owner is like, I called Zed. And Zed is going to decide what to do. Yeah. So this is another memorable moment from the movie where these two guys are like these hillbillies i guess maynard and zed and they have this other guy in a room that they refer to as the gimp who is just like in a bondage suit and they're deciding which one of these two gentlemen they should rape first will it be butch will it be marcellus there's a very creepy very slow game of eeny meeny miny mo they pick marcellus they take him into the back room and Butch is able to free himself. He's able to knock out the gimp and he goes upstairs and he's going to leave. I mean, he hates Marcellus. Marcellus was trying to kill him, you know, like three minutes earlier in the movie. But then something gets him to say, no, I, I can't do that. I can't leave him like this. He decides to go back and rescue him. He looks around the pawn shop for a weapon. He picks up like a hammer and a baseball bat and a chainsaw. None of those are quite right. He ends up grabbing a katana sword and then he goes back and rescues Marcellus. Question about this scene. Is this supposed to be funny? Like no judgments if you as a 15 year old laughed at this. Was this funny to 15 year old James? Was this funny to people in 1994? Um, I'll tell you that definitely uh, what's funny is the weapon picking. That's funny. He picks up the hammer and he's like, you know, practicing swinging that. Then he picks up the baseball bat. No, this is better. Then like, yeah, chainsaw. And then he sees the katana. That's very funny. The gimp, um, the gimp, uh, until you know what's going on, it's kind of comical. I think the gimp is kind of funny. Um, once you see what's really going on, it's not laugh out loud funny. No. Like, once uh, Butch opens the door, you see exactly what they're doing. I don't think the scene itself is funny. I do think there are funny parts in the scene. Gotcha. It struck me that it was trying to be funny, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was misreading it. But it definitely also struck me as being homophobic. This is like the stereotypical straight man fear about gay people. Like, well, they can do that to themselves if they want, but if anyone ever tried to do that to me, uh, uh, I'd kill them. 
No, to me, I think you you had the right word before, hillbilly-ish. I mean, this seems like something out of the movie Deliverance. It's definitely an homage to Deliverance. I, I mean, I see what you're saying, but no, I saw it as more like, I mean, these guys are total rednecks. Uh, and it's like, and Zed, you'd imagine he's playing like a banjo wherever he grew up. That, that kind of imagery. Like, it's Southern cyst. Uh, maybe not uh, homophobic, but it's, it's something stereotype. I mean, there is a giant Confederate flag in the upstairs part of the pawn shop, to your point. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, so Butch saves Marcellus. They kill one guy, and then Marcellus shoots the guy who is raping him right in the dick and is like, oh, you're going to have a slow, painful death. And Butch is like, yeah, so what about us? Like, what happens now between us? Because remember, Butch massively ripped off Marcellus by not throwing the fight, but then he saved him. So it's like, well, you leave town, you never tell anyone about this, and we're good. So you can sort of debate if that was the reason why Butch did go back to save Marcellus, if he was not really being altruistic, if he was thinking about himself and, oh, if I save this guy, then he won't be after me and I won't have to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life. Or was he thinking of the story that Christopher Walken told him about his father, who was a hero, and, you know, the two of them went through so much stuff together, and he was going to help this guy and do the right thing, and the fact that he picked the katana blade and not the chainsaw and the hammer, like, you're right, that was kind of funny when that happens, but also, like, the samurai sword represents honor, and he was doing the honorable thing. He made the right choice. I think it's definitely the kind of guy Butch is. He's going to risk his life for the sentimental, useless uh, watch. I mean, the watch is is a piece of crap. It's not really, I mean, it's old, but it's probably not worth anything. It's been up a guy's ass. Yeah, I mean, it's literally a piece of crap. Yeah, but uh, I think the guy Butch has honor. And I actually think to a point, like, Marcellus has a little bit of honor because I'm thinking, like, Marcellus can never have this get out what happened. I mean, never. And really the best thing for Marcellus to do to ensure that no one ever finds out is to take the shotgun and put the next bullet into uh, Butch. But he doesn't because it's sort of like what you said. Like, you know, it's like what Christopher Walken says. When two men have gone through this together, there is a bond that they share. And when they're doing like the eeny, meeny, miny, moe thing, the two of them look at each other with the ball and gag in their mouth. And they're both like, holy shit, like, where the fuck are we? And, you know, they're in this together. And even though they hate each other, I do think it's a redemption story in a weird way. Yes, it certainly is. And and there are these themes about loyalty throughout the movie and the whole thing with Marcellus's wife and Vincent needs to be loyal to his boss, Marcellus, and not make a move on Mia. So there is that theme throughout the movie. Um, But then the movie cuts back to that scene with Brett, you know, from way back in the beginning where Vincent and Jules are getting the suitcase, except now we're getting it from a different point of view. There's another person in the apartment hiding in the bathroom. And right after Jules shoots Brett, this guy comes running into the room, unloads the gun, shooting at Jules and Vincent, but misses every shot somehow and then you know obviously they kill him uh but then jules thinks that this is a miracle he thinks it's divine intervention and vincent's very dismissive of it like yeah you know it's just a lucky thing that happened you know whatever um this kind of creates this sort of 
crisis for Jules. Like, what does that mean? Why were they spared? They should have been dead. They take the only other guy who is left there, you know, one of Brett's friends, this guy Marvin, they take him with them. And while they're driving, Vincent's like, let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think it was divine intervention? And I guess like they hit a bump. And while he's talking, Vincent accidentally blows Marvin's head off. I didn't get like their connection with Marvin. Was he one of their guys who is on the inside? Was he just one of Brett's friends that they were taking for some reason? Like they seemed a little chummy with him. I didn't get like their connection to him. I assume this was Brett's crew. Brett, to me, I mean, kind of looked like a college boy. He he probably grew up in the suburbs, and he definitely made a big mistake by crossing uh, Marcellus Wallace. But um, I think that they were probably going to take Marvin back, probably to kill him. Things were not going to end well for Marvin either either way. I'm sure they were going to question him, because we don't know what this uh, briefcase was. Maybe they were going to sell it to someone. Who are you going to sell it to? We have to go after that guy. They were going to get some information out of this Marvin guy. But the point of Marvin is that he gets shot in the head, blood goes everywhere, and they're in the middle of the valley with a car that is soaked in blood. And... And they need to pull off somewhere. And Jules remembers that he has what you can imagine is not like a very good friend, but some kind of like probably former um, crime partner who is played by Quentin Tarantino, this guy Jimmy. And they decide to hide out in his uh, house while they uh, figure out what to do. Yeah. And then we get to another part that is really problematic, I think. Throughout this movie, they use the N-word a lot. And that's a thing that happens in a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies. Our friend Jason Torres talked about it on our True Romance episode. But in True Romance and in Reservoir Dogs and in a lot of this movie, too, a lot of the times when someone says the N-word, they're a criminal, they're a murderer, they're a bad guy. So one could say, well, you know, they're a bad person who's horrible for lots of reasons, one of which is that they're racist. But the character of Jimmy, he is supposed to be not a criminal. He is supposed to be a normal guy who is not happy that there's a dead body in his garage. And he's friends with Jules, who is black. And he keeps saying the N-word to Jules over and over again. And Jimmy is played by Quentin Tarantino, who wrote and directed the movie. And all I could think when I was watching this is like... It just really seems like Quentin Tarantino wanted to say this over and over again. And then I was reading today an interview with Samuel L. Jackson where Samuel L. Jackson was defending Quentin Tarantino for using the N-word. You know, he's sort of saying, like, that's his thing, whatever. But he did say specifically about this scene that he told Quentin Tarantino not to say it like that. And Tarantino was like, no, no, I want to say it. I'm going to say it. And Samuel L. Jackson was like, well... You're acting it. You're the writer, the director. I guess I can't convince you otherwise. This felt really gratuitous and unnecessary. I mean, the one thing I I disagree with you there is that uh, Jimmy is supposed to be a good guy. No, Jimmy is a bad guy. And everyone who uses this word in this film, they're scumbags. And uh, another character that uses the N-word liberally is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, Django Unchained. I know you haven't seen that film, but he is a scumbag. Like, this guy is maybe a reformed criminal, but he probably was like Jules' co-hitman. He used 
used to be Vincent before Vincent was Jules' partner. Because you kind of get the feeling that Vincent and Jules don't know each other that well. It probably used to be uh, Jules and Jimmy. I, I mean, I'm not defending him using it. I think it's appropriate for this character to be like, this guy's a piece of shit. And other than him saying this uh, word, I don't really have proof that he's a piece of shit. But the way he just so liberally uses it, I'm not going to feel that bad if this guy's life is ruined if his wife comes home. Because this guy's a total piece of shit, this Jimmy guy. Also, his wife, Bonnie, they have like this scene of like, what would happen if Bonnie comes home? And Bonnie is black. So, you know, like that also makes it even weirder that he just feels like he should throw that word around. Right, right. Like he's one of these like Strom Thurmond guys who like he's one of these like Southern Dixiecrats, yet he's sleeping with all these black women having all these illegitimate kids. And these guys are absolute pieces of shit. And so I think it just reminds you that, you know, there's almost no good people in this film. And certainly it's not Jimmy. I get what you're saying. But then Harvey Keitel shows up. He's the wolf and he's going to clean it up. And he's like the master fixer. You know, like when something terrible happens, you call this guy. He's the guy who's going to solve all their problems. And I really found his character to be really underwhelming because his like grand solution is he tells them to clean up the car with like cleaning products that Jimmy has in the house and then put blankets on top of it. Like, you know, like that expression, or maybe you don't know this expression because you're a doctor and maybe this doesn't happen in medicine, but uh, this meeting could have been an email. Like the wolf goes all the way over there to like walk them through this. He could have just said it on the phone. It's just kind of anticlimactic, I think. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think the coolness of the wolf is in his amazing calmness like the three of them are kind of panicking like oh my wife bonnie's gonna be home and jules is is he doesn't know what to do and even in the midst of this time bomb jules is like um you should say please before you tell us what to do before the cops arrest us all for murder these people do not have their heads on straight and the wolf is like all right folks here's what we're gonna do You're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and Jimmy, you're going to get me a cup of coffee, and we're going to do this and this and this. And while he's doing that, he's arranging for where to store the cars, and he's like, folks, we're going to be driving, and if any cops stop, we're going to do this, this, and this. I think the point of the wolf is he's just very, very cool. He's calm and cool. I agree with you. It's not some, like, insane, like, ah, like he's going to pull out, like, off his Batman utility belt. Like, he has the, like, clean up blood from the back of the uh, car solution in my belt. I just think it really just required a cool head. And it's also Harvey Keitel in a tuxedo. He's in the middle of some, like, black tie dinner that you have no idea what's going on. And yet this guy is, like, taking a phone call. It's very cool with the capital C. I get you. I just found it to be like a little anticlimactic. And, you know, the movie had been like really moving at a good clip. I thought it slowed down here. Um, After this happens, then we're back at the diner scene. Jules and Vincent are on their way to deliver the suitcase to Marcellus, but they're hungry. They stop for breakfast and Pumpkin and Honey Bunny are doing their robbery. And Jules has decided that He's out of the game. He's retired. He's not going to be a, a bad guy anymore. And he could just easily kill Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. He's got a gun. But instead, he decides to talk to Pumpkin, uh, who he calls Ringo, and very calmly 
de-escalate the situation. He gives him the money that's in his wallet. He shows him what's in the briefcase. Pumpkin's like, I want it. And obviously Jules is like, no. He uses it as a distraction to, you know, get the upper hand, pull his gun on him and say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to leave. You're not going to kill anyone. You're just going to go. Meanwhile, Vincent comes out of the bathroom because that's where he was for the beginning part of this. And it's tense, but Jules is being very honest. He's decided to do the honorable thing, the right thing. Nobody needs to die. This is not the life he wants to live anymore. And it works. You know, he he keeps saying that everyone's going to be cool like Fonzie. And he reevaluates his Ezekiel quote and what it means and who's the bad guy, who is the, the vengeance and He's decided, you know what, I'm going to live on the the straight and narrow path and you guys can do whatever you want after you leave here, but you better just get out now. And Pumpkin and Honey Bunny leave with the money that they stole. Jules and Vincent leave. They tuck their guns into their like shorts that they're wearing because they lost their suits at uh, Jimmy's house. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. There's a lot. There's a lot in here. A lot happens. But do you think that Pulp Fiction stands the test of time? Um, having watched Reservoir Dogs and then having watched Pulp Fiction after that, Quentin Tarantino got, I think he got a lot better from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction. I watched Kill Bill Volume 1 very recently. He gets way better than this. The journey of Quentin Tarantino is a journey through somebody learning how to make better and better films. I think this film's a lot of fun. The acting is top-notch. I think the music is wonderful. The music is amazing. Even, you know, I hate opening credits. Like, generally, if, if nothing's happening in the opening credits, I don't like them. But the opening credits in this film, it's so groovy and funky and fun that, I, like, I actually even watched it. It's, it's nothing interesting. It's just the uh, credits. But uh, it's just a fun music. Urge Overkill's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. I didn't love that song in, in the mid-'90s when it was all over the radio. But I realized that that's a pretty good song. And I didn't realize back then it was uh, it was an old song that's a remake of a song. By who? Um, Bob Dylan. No, Neil Diamond. I know, I know. Um, apparently there's a longer cut that's close to three hours because just before the film was on, I Googled like what's the length of Pulp Fiction and it said two hours and 58 minutes. And I'm like... Ugh, three hours, but actually the the cut that we saw, and I assume you saw the same cut, is like two hours and 38 minutes or something. So there's an even longer cut. I don't think it needs to be two hours and 40 minutes. I think there are some parts that are funny when you see it in the theater the first time. You could probably have eliminated the gimp entirely. You know, like small things like that uh, are not needed and a little more juvenile and, and not really needed in this film. He probably doesn't need a lot of the gratuitous either language or violence in the film some of it is needed probably not all of it but you're not watching just a movie you're watching a quentin tarantino movie and i think for a quentin tarantino movie this does stand the test of time i think he's made better films i haven't seen this film in 20 years and i'm not dying to see it like after i saw kill bill i was like this is a really cool film and I'll see this again, you know, in a couple of years or something. This film I don't really need to see again, but it's well made. It, it is. It's a, it's a good film. And even if I would have made cuts myself, I'm not Quentin Tarantino. You're not? 
<laughs> no, I am not. But uh, this film, to me, does stand the test of time. Al, it's the 250th episode. You're going to close it out. Does Pulp Fiction stand the test of time? Well, I mean, like I said, I do think there's a lot in here that is problematic. And Tarantino likes to throw the N-word around. There are these elements of homophobia, also misogyny. I mean, like all of the wives and girlfriends are treated like shit in this movie, except for Honey Bunny. Marcellus is like, I'm going out of town. Someone babysit my wife. And Butch is like screaming at his beautiful girlfriend because she accidentally forgot one thing that he forgot to tell her was really important to him. But Pumpkin seems to really care about Honey Bunny and doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. But, you know, there are issues with this movie and there are issues with Quentin Tarantino in general. But I do agree with you that this movie is much, much stronger than Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs, I really felt like was kind of pointless. Like it was just gratuitous and violent and like to what end? This movie has a point. This movie has interesting stories. I appreciate the theme of meaning that is recurring throughout the movie of like the joke with uh, what do they call the quarter pounder with cheese? They talk about like what names mean and it's not a a motorcycle, it's a chopper. Like all of these things, what they mean. Um, There is some deep stuff in this movie. And just in terms of standing the test of time, People who have never seen this movie have heard about it. They've probably seen the poster. They've heard some of the lines. They might know about the shot in the heart thing. It has been parodied endlessly. It has been referenced a thousand times. There are many, many like deep analyses of this movie. Like just doing some research today, I read the word postmodern like more times than I'd ever seen it before. It's considered a very influential movie. It kind of changed what it meant to be an indie movie, you know, in the mid-90s. It sort of gave credence to these auteur directors who were allowed to just kind of do whatever the fuck they wanted and really kind of changed cinema maybe forever. Like, it, it definitely had an impact on movies in general. Overall, even though it does have some problems, I'm going to say that the movie does stand the test of time. Maybe I'm also just in a good mood because it's episode 250. But, uh, you know, I also chuckled a couple of times in this movie. There's a couple of like moments of levity. Like I didn't have that at all in Reservoir Dogs. It's a movie that's definitely worth revisiting, uh, you know, acknowledging what's wrong with it. But uh, good to see and to understand like what it did to the movie industry. And, you know, one person that's pivotal to the making of this film that we haven't mentioned is a man named Roger Avery. And he was uh, Quentin Tarantino's like, writing partner. Even though this is written by uh, Quentin Tarantino, this was all brought together by Quentin and Roger Avery. And I'm not really sure which parts are Avery, which parts are Tarantino. His stuff was more about Butch and, uh, and his girlfriend, Fabian. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I just think it's very interesting that he had a a writing partner here, and I believe uh, that they kind of had a falling out. Yeah, what happened was they kind of co-wrote the movie together, but because they wanted to sell it as written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, they gave Roger Avery a story by credit. So Quentin Tarantino solo won the Golden Globe for screenplay, didn't thank Roger Avery. They both won the Oscar for screenplay, but there was bad blood about how it all went down, and they haven't worked together since. 
you could maybe argue that, well, some of it was the studios doing because they wanted to put Tarantino in the spotlight, but also maybe it was some of Tarantino's ego in there too. So I don't know like all of the specifics, but it does seem like uh, Roger Avery got the shaft. All right. Well, one more question for you, Al. Do you have another 250 in you? I do. Do you? I got way more than 250 left in me. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it. Let's go. But what should we do next week? How should we follow up Pulp Fiction? What should we do for 251? What do you think, James? I assume there's only one possible uh, follow-up to this. The Care Bears movie 2, colon, The Next Generation. I'm going to veto that one. How about instead we do a movie with Rodney Dangerfield in drag? Let's do Ladybugs. I don't believe it's Rodney Dangerfield in drag. I believe he coaches a boy who's in drag. You're right, but doesn't he wear women's clothes at one point? I think. Maybe not. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember this film, really. I mean, this is filmed with uh, the late Rodney Dangerfield and the late Jonathan Brandis. And Rodney Dangerfield coaches a girls' soccer team and wants uh, Jonathan Brandis' character on it. So he has him dress up as a girl. Yeah, I remember the kind of overall story, but I don't remember really anything that happens. Let's watch Ladybugs for episode 251. That will be great. Guys, thank you for listening for 250 episodes. It means so much to us that so many of you have stuck with the show. You keep listening. I love, love, love when you guys write to us on social media. I truly do appreciate it. I read every post and tweet and Instagram comment. So keep those coming. You're already subscribed after 250 episodes. You surely must already be subscribed. But if not, if this was your first episode, hit that subscribe button. Stay tuned for the next 250. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Later. Wah, wah, wah. Ow, 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 ow.